Hi everyone, I'm Emma McAllister-Hall, one of the associates in the Bristow's data protection team. I'm joined today by my colleagues Fiona Campbell, a senior associate, and Zoe Walkinshaw, an associate in the Bristow's team as well. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to other episodes in this podcast series. And today we're going to um, be discussing the issues that arise from the application of GDPR to medical research and also the data protection issues raised by COVID-19. So you can find more information about these topics in our publication, the DP Top 10, which is available on the Bristow's website. So over to Fiona, who's going to be discussing clinical trials and scientific research. Fiona, your article in the top 10 focused on clinical trials and scientific research. Does the GDPR apply to these activities? Thanks, Emma. Well, where there is medical research, there is data, almost always personal and almost always special category, be it health-related, biometric or genetic. So yes, the GDPR does apply to the processing of this data. And given the ingrained concept of the need for consent from participants in research trials, researchers could be forgiven for thinking that the GDPR and DPA 2018 also require explicit consent for the processing of special category data for scientific research purposes. This is, of course, reinforced by the need for ethical informed consent to treatment and consent to share confidential medical data under the common law duty of confidentiality. However, consent is not always the only or even the most appropriate ground available under the GDPR. Yes, so so what happens if a patient withdraws their consent? Well, yes, this is another issue with consent. Data subjects must be able to withdraw their consent at any time under the GDPR and may request the deletion of their data, but that is often not possible in the context of data already collected during a trial. Consent must also be freely given But in the context of a clinical study, the result of saying no may be that treatment is suspended. So it's difficult to show that it really is freely given in these circumstances. One way to avoid these difficulties would be to use anonymous data, which would bring the project outside the scope of the GDPR altogether. However, this is not always possible, particularly in clinical trials, where the individual's progress needs to be tracked over time and or where the same doctors are both treating the patients and carrying out the research and could therefore recognise their patients from the data. Anonymization can also undermine the usefulness of the data if too many identifying details need to be stripped out. So, so on those bases, would you say that the uh, GDPR acts as a, as a barrier to scientific research? Well, the intention is that the GDPR should not be a barrier to medical research. Scientific research is in fact specifically identified as a lawful purpose for processing special category data, along with legitimate interests under Article 6. And this has been noted by the EDPB as the most relevant legal ground to rely on for clinical trials. The GDPR also provides several useful derogations for organisations conducting scientific research. In fact, in response to the COVID-19 crisis, the EDPB quickly published an opinion on scientific research, specifically into COVID-19, emphasising that the GDPR does not hinder research and that scientific progress must be balanced equally with privacy rights. More detailed guidance on processing health data for scientific research is part of the EDPB's work plan for the coming year, which we hope should lend further comfort to those who need personal data for their research. 
One type of data that's being used increasingly in clinical trials is genomic data. Zoe, can you maybe tell us some more about what happens with genomic data? What actually is it and does it fall under the scope of the GDPR? Well, genomic data can certainly fall under the scope of the GDPR. So to start off with, let's just consider what genomic data is. Genomics is the study of all genes and the relationships between them to identify the result and impact on an organism. So genome sequencing is compiling a picture of a person's DNA at a certain time, which can then be compared to other pictures. Now, genome sequencing has exploded over the past decade, and it can be used for a really wide range of purposes, from developing personalised medical treatment to determining entitlement to insurance. And genomic data falls under the scope of the GDPR as a special category of personal data, which means that it's subject to strict conditions for processing. So can genomic data be anonymised to take it out of the scope of the GDPR, as it would no longer be personal data? Well, the problem is if and how genomic data can be fully anonymised. True anonymization is a high threshold to meet under the GDPR. And it is possible that attempts to anonymise genomic data, in fact, end up pseudonymizing that data instead by ascribing them a number or another identifier, for instance, but not preventing re-identification from being theoretically possible with the right combination of information. Pseudonymization is a security measure that can be applied to data, but it's not a route out of the GDPR. And genomic data may be identifiable in the hands of one organisation, but not another. And the point at which the data becomes anonymous is not always clear. So in that case, is anonymization actually the right approach? Well, whilst it is definitely a good idea to try and protect individuals' identity at all stages of genomic research, true anonymity of their data may not be the right focus, because true anonymity may not be desirable or even possible for genomics research purposes. And even if it was achieved, trying to remove the data from the scope of the GDPR in this way may not sit well with the evolving efforts and ethical concerns around the protection and management of genomics data. So therefore, a better approach may be to build in privacy from the outset, and anonymization and pseudonymization techniques could still form part of that process. So involve the relevant individuals in the processing of their data, be clear and transparent about why and how their data is being used, ensure that sufficient security measures are in place and ensure that their rights under legislation can be respected. An interesting development is the recent supportive statements from the supervisory authorities on the use of personal data for research purposes related to the pandemic. But in the end, the application of the GDPR may not bring as many challenges as some fear. And Emma, I know you looked at European Data Protection Authority's response to the pandemic. So has the urgency of responding to the global pandemic meant that data protection authorities and indeed government, governments relax their approach to data protection compliance? Well, at the uh, start of the crisis, the uh, the ICO and the European Data, um, data Protection Board and other e-data protection authorities uh, quickly released guidance on how, how to comply with the privacy issues that were raised by the pandemic. Obviously, these were unprecedented um, times and issues that people were living through. Um, 
So the regulator's message was has always been clear, and that's that data protection should not prevent initiatives to deal with and respond to the pandemic, yet privacy legislation must still be complied with. So it's it's clear that the ICO and the other European regulators still expect organisations and governments to comply with data protection law when responding to the pandemic. In the UK, for example, the government, as many other governments are, is implementing initiatives such as test and trace and contact tracing apps, which require large scale collection and processing of personal data. And they have given assurances that people's privacy will be respected. Um, there is still arguably a tension between strict compliance with data protection law and the drive to obtain as much data as possible, also sensitive personal data about people's health, um, which obviously the government will need in order to prevent a second spike of infections. Yes, and is it really possible to comply with data protection law whilst also undertaking initiatives to respond to the pandemic? many of which rely so heavily on large volumes of sensitive health data and new technologies. So the, the data protection authorities uh, definitely think this is possible. Um, and in support of this, it's also important to recognise that the GDPR itself provides for scenarios in which personal data will be processed to monitor epidemics and ensure public health. Just as an example, in initiatives such as contact tracing apps obviously rely heavily on data about a large number of people and the uh, data protection authorities have not forbidden the use of these, of these technologies, but they have advocated the use of anonymised data and robust privacy safeguards. In practice, there does remain the central question of how to balance the privacy of a population against its public health. For instance, how to balance privacy against the obvious desire to collect as much data as possible and use that data for a variety of different purposes. Then there is also the mindset, mindset and perceptions of individuals to take into account here, because the efficacy of contact tracing apps obviously depends on most of the population downloading them. But it still remains to be seen whether individuals will trust technology that they might perceive as a surveillance on their movements. In the UK, for instance, given the significant delays in getting the app up and running, we're still waiting to see what the attitude to users will be and whether it will actually be one of the key uh, tools that will be used in order to fight the uh, pandemic. OK, and has the pandemic had an impact on data protection authorities' level of enforcement? The, uh, the ICO has um, announced that it will act proportionately when determining whether to take enforcement action. And by this, they, they mean in part that they recognise that resources organisations might normally have spent on compliance uh, might need to be diverted in these extraordinary times. The ICO has also, for instance, paused its investigation into the ad tech industry to avoid exerting undue pressure on businesses. In terms of the action enforcement activity that has taken place since the crisis started, the, uh, the ICO has only issued four monetary penalties since March. Mainly these were for violations of marketing rules under PECA. So it's clear that the actual enforcement is, is at historically low levels. And this is probably reflective of the ICO's own statement in July that it expects to conduct fewer investigations during this time 
and it will focus its attention on circumstances which suggest most serious non-compliance. It will also be interesting to see where um, penalties are issued, whether businesses will be able to raise financial hardship where they've been impacted by the pandemic, as this could then be used by the ICO to potentially lower um, a fine that is issued. But again, this we wait to see whether this will happen in practice. So I think that was everything we have time for today. Thank you again to Fiona and Zoe for their helpful overviews and thank you everyone for listening. Please check out the other Bristow's Data Protection podcasts and don't forget to download the DPE Top 10 if you haven't already. And finally, if you'd like more information or advice on any of the issues that have been raised in the podcast, please don't hesitate to get in contact with us.